Hey, listener, Zach Harper here. Underdog Fantasy, the easiest place to play fantasy sports. Also, fastest growing fantasy app in the industry. Here's how it works. The Pick'em Game. Pick whether your favorite players will have a higher or lower stat total in this week's game for a chance to win big. How big, you ask? I'm so glad you asked that question, listener. You can win up to 100 times your money in a single night. Pick between two and five players. Build a pick'em entry. You can also do rivals picks. You can put like Tyrese Halliburton and Jalen Brunson against each other. And whoever has more points, more assists, more rebounds, whatever you want to do, that is your rivals pick. I would maybe go with Jalen Brunson in these playoffs. By the way, in the regular season, Jalen Brunson scoring tear, going higher on his point totals all the time. Joel Embiid, whenever he did actually play, higher on his scoring totals all the time. Victor Wembanyama for the next 15, 20 years. Here's a pro tip for you. Take higher on the blocks. That's right. So you're probably wondering, how do you sign up? Oh my God, listener, you are full of good questions today. Sign up with the promo code DING, that's D-I-N-G, to claim your special pick First time deposit offer up to $250 in bonus cash. $250, man, that's a lot. Visit underdogfantasy.com or find them in the app store. And don't forget to register with our code DING, D-I-N-G, to claim your special pick and first time deposit offer up to $250 in bonus cash. Must be 18 or older, 21 or older in Massachusetts, Arizona, 19 or older in Alabama and Nebraska, and present in a state where Underdog Fantasy operates. Terms apply. Concerned with your play? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.ncpgambling.org. Arizona, 1-800-NEXT-STEP. That's 1-800-639-8783. Or text next step. To five three three four two New York, call the twenty four seven Hope Line at one eight seven seven eight Hope and Y or text Hope and Y four six seven three six nine. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May seventeenth. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of forty five dollars, equivalent to fifteen dollars per month, unlimited over forty gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active Mint customers by five thirty one twenty four get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May thirty first, twenty twenty four. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or Zepbound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the Woke Bros. Of course, I'm your host, Big Waz, a.k.a. Wozny Lambre, joined as always by my comrade, my brother, finally back in yeah. Los Angeles yeah. <laughs> after the most prolonged vacation of the year, <laughs> Nando Vila, ladies and gentlemen. What's up, Nando? It's good to be back. Good to be back. I drove 14 hours wow. on Sunday. And now I'm back in LA. Wow. Back in Venice. Yeah. 
Wow. My goodness. I know it's nice and breezy out in Venice. Nice and cool. Um, Are you back from New York? Yeah, yeah. I got back on Monday. Uh, Shouts to my my close friends. Yeah, super hot, of course. Uh, August in New York is like a swamp. Uh, My close friends, Kwame and Katie, the new Kwame and Katie James, they were married on Friday. Ah. So congrats to them. Uh, got to see friends, got to see some family, got to do some New York stuff. It was just great. Um, How was flying? I flew JetBlue. And so JetBlue is doing their socially distanced thing. You're never going to have oh, anybody nice. in the middle seat. Uh, generally an empty plane. It was fantastic. Free nice. Wi-Fi, direct TV. I'm able to watch the NBA games on a cross-country flight. I, I, you know, NBA doubleheader on a cross-country flight. It nice. doesn't get much better than that. So shouts to JetBlue, probably the America's best airline. Absolutely. We don't. We didn't get paid to say that. And yeah. so on today's show... Last week, after Nando and I finished our Woke Bros, the NBA essentially went on strike uh, in protest of the tragic shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, The Milwaukee Bucks basically spearheaded this thing because they are the team that plays in Wisconsin. And there was sort of a domino effect after that, a bunch of fallout from that. And we're going to get into that. We don't normally get into sports on this show because, you know, I'm supposed to only be doing that in my other job. But this kind of goes beyond sports. This is in the purview of things that we talk about here all the time when it comes to labor, political action, um, collectivism, things of those nature. So we're going to get into those aspects of that. Don't worry, we're not going to talk about Jamal Murray's jump shot. But first, Massachusetts primary. Last night, the results came in. Incumbent Ed Markey was able to defeat King Joffrey, a.k.a. Joe Kennedy, (laughs) in the Senate, the Democratic Senate primary. Unfortunately, for his house, for the open house congressional seat, Alex Morris took an L to Richard Neal, the incumbent. Uh, we, me and Nando talked about the Marky, Marky Kennedy race, how Pelosi stuck her finger in Marky's eye, even though she said <laughs> you're never supposed to primary incumbents within the Democratic Party, breaking her own completely stupid and self-serving rule in the process, making herself look like an even bigger clown than she has. Ever, basically, ever since she's been reelected as House um Majority speaker. leader, speaker, yeah. excuse me. Um, she has been horrific. Uh, yeah. And so she continued in that trend. But Marky was able to fend Joe Kennedy off. You know, um, the entitled little twerp lost. <laughs> and, you know, he's going to have to go back to his castle and sulk <laughs> by himself in his million thread count bed. And Alex Morse, you know, some people will say the smear campaign worked. Um, I don't know that you can say that it didn't have its effect on the race. Uh, he ends up losing to Richard Neal. But Nando, please sum up some of this for the people, man, what it means for, you know, Democratic Party politics going forward in Massachusetts, too. So I, I think the I'll start with the Ed Markey uh, and Joe Kennedy race, because I think that that is the one that shows um, a lot about how power can work and how we can exercise power. So Ed Markey is not, again, like we talked about it last, last week is not Bernie Sanders, right? He's not 
this kind of like uh, left wing gadfly who has just been kind of holding the torch for for decades, like Bernie has. He 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 is more of a you know inside baseball player in the system, but he's on the kind of progressive side of that equation. And you know he but he voted for Iraq. You know he's he's had some questionable. Uh, things on his record, but more or less, he's kind of a feisty progressive in, in, in general in the Senate. And he was being challenged by Joe Kennedy from the right. Okay. And when Democrats do get challenged from the right, they usually respond by moving to the right, by being like, like Joe Biden's doing it right now. Like Joe Biden is releasing a national ad today, condemning rioting and looting um, and like calling for law and order. Right. Yep. You know, because Trump is doing things like attacking him from the right. And then Joe, Joe Biden is responding by moving right. He's doing the same thing with fracking. You know, Trump said like, oh, Joe Biden's trying to ban fracking. And then Joe Biden's like, no, I will not ban fracking, <laughs> which is a, a thing that his base would like to happen. You know, so Democrats have this instinctive reflex to whenever they're punched from the right to move to the right. Ed Markey did something different. As soon as he was challenged by Joe Kennedy, and Joe Kennedy jumped out to a big lead just because he's a he's a freaking Kennedy in Massachusetts and a Kennedy in Massachusetts has never lost a race ever. Um, Ed Markey reacted by moving left. Right. And and he he doubled down on the Green New Deal and Medicare for all. And, you know, talking about his record uh, challenging Wall Street, which is real, you know, kind of courting the um, the endorsements of things like the Sunrise Movement and the Sunrise Movement, which is a great organization, kind of really rallied behind him and mobilized young climate activists. You know, so he responded differently from the normal Democrat you know, and moved left, kind of embraced the base, you know, did the, you know, the thing that we would want to happen, even though he's not, he's not like necessarily the most left-wing guy, he moved that way in order to survive this race. And he won, you know, he was rewarded for it. Um, and I think that that sends a message to other people who might be challenged or who might find themselves in these situations. Like, no, if you move to the left, if you double down on the things that the base wants, um, you will, uh, you you could win, or you may, and you will win. Like I mean, I think like the Joe Biden campaign, and we can talk about this, is moving right pretty dramatically, especially rhetorically, and um, and they're just collapsing in the polls. I mean, like it's just it, like you, the poll, the polling trend is is very clear. You know, yeah. Trump is gaining and Joe Biden is dropping, and he just keeps moving right, and it's going to keep tightening in that sense. You know, instead of doing what Markey did, you know, instead of talking about a Green New Deal, how we're going to reinvent this country's economy to sustain um, the the transition that we need to stave off climate change while at the same time empowering working people and all that good stuff. I'm not talking about that. He's condemning rioting and looting, right? I, um, but here's the thing. I, I, again, we've said it enough times on here, Biden and them are going to, they're going to dance with the girl that they brought to the dance, right? Like, they kind of ran on sort of a right-wing plank anyway. Uh, so this isn't a huge departure for them to do that. Uh, and, again, like we mentioned, the people they want to court are legitimately scared by rioting and looting. Like, they, 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 the, the, these suburban people who's, who have these beautiful, nice, cushy lives are legitimately, they watch CNN, 
And they see that stuff. They see stores being burned down by looters. And, they, you know, they get the connection. The people are making the connection for them that it's the Black Lives Matter people are burning cities down. We can't. We right. have to condemn this. I get that black people are human and we shouldn't just treat them like dogs. But come on, man. I want to go right. to Saks Fifth Ave. You know, and so I understand what what Biden is doing in that sense. And they didn't see a convention bump. They didn't see a VP announcement bump. Uh, So it's like, they got to try to do what they have to try to do. And I mean, hopefully you would think in the case of Biden that they would, they would basically blame Trump for the rioting and the looting, right? It's essentially, it's happening on your watch. Um, The conditions under which that allow for people to want to go out on the streets and do this is under your watch, and so it's your fault. Instead of doing that, you know what they're going to do. They're just going to blindly just be like, no, no, no. We're the people that love the police. No, we're the... No, make it his fault. Yeah. <laughs> like, how they hard is that? They would never make that argument. And, you know, this reminds me a lot. I mean, I look, I think about the, the, the 2004 election a lot because that was the first election that I voted in. Um, and at the time, it seemed like this kind of momentous thing, right? It was the Bush administration, which had you know, committed the historic crime of getting us into Iraq in 2003. And, you know, the country was disgusted, especially like the the base, you know, uh, uh, of the Democratic Party was absolutely disgusted with this man. And what did the Democrats do is they they nominated John John Kerry, who then ran to the right of George Bush on Iraq. You know, what he said is like, no, what he's doing is he's mishandling Iraq, and I'm actually going to send more troops to Iraq, (laughs) you know? And and so then the, the base was demoralized, right? The base that had mobilized these like giant uh, uh, social protests on the streets, like some of the biggest of all time. Like people don't remember the Iraq war protests. I'm glad you're bringing that up because it's not some revisionist history. Um, The Iraq war didn't work out and and therefore people are doing the 2020 hindsight thing and saying like, no, as soon as they introduced the idea, people were out on the streets like, no, we can't do this. Yeah. And the Democratic Party did the thing that they always do. Like, okay, and it's a very analogous situation to now in which there is this social uprising, one of the biggest in American history, and the Democratic Party is not embracing them. They're doing the opposite. They're not. And and, and the thing is, like, it's not about, like, you know, capitulating to every single demand of the protesters or anything like that. But it is allying yourself with the protesters and helping manage that situation and helping guide it to, like, a more productive. That's what a real political party would do. But the Democratic Party, what it's doing is it pushing them away, sort of dampening the enthusiasm and running to the right of Trump on things like defund the police and all that stuff. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like Joe Biden put out like in an interview was like, no, Trump is the one who wants to defund the police. I don't want to defund the police, you know, like, <laughs> so they're doing the thing, they're doing the thing that they, that exactly would happen in 2004, in which they see this issue. There is a social uprising. And what they do is like think they worry about the, what you're talking about, those like uh, nice suburbanites with their nice houses that want to go shopping at Saks Fifth Avenue. And that kind of unrest uh, destabilizes those people and makes them scared. And so they but they want to court those people. But that never works. Those people always trust Republicans more to maintain law and order like that. Right. The, the, the Democratic Party is never going to win on issues of national security or law and order and all that stuff. That's Republican terrain. Don't 
play in that terrain. If you play in their terrain, they will beat you, you know? And again, I, like going back to Ed Markey, you know, like it was, that's what was remarkable about this race is that he didn't do the, the typical Democrat thing and ran to the right. He actually allied himself hard with the new kind of base of the Democratic Party, the young, precarious, much more radicalized generation than the one that he came out of. And, of uh, and he won. So that's kind of that's the, that's just an interesting dynamic about this race. That and that, we do that have to recognize worth- that Massachusetts generally, no, it's not the freaking liberal utopia that certain people on the right would like you to believe. But compared to the country, it's more liberal. Um, yeah. And, and Although Massachusetts, you know, did did elect Scott Brown. Yes. Uh, yep. Massachusetts. Yep. Uh, Absolutely. As a, and Mitt Romney. Uh, yep. <laughs> um, you know, and I think Massachusetts now has a Republican governor. Yes, sir. Um, so it's not like again, it's, it's not, not your liberal utopia. No. But you know, when you consider just the country at large, when you think of the Midwest specifically, is what I'm thinking about. Um, places like Pennsylvania, which might as well be the goddamn Midwest. Uh, I, I think that's that's what Joe Biden thinks about and cares about for real. You know, when it comes to the type of voters, not his his. Obviously, we know the donor class is number one, but the voters that he loves the most are those. You know those Midwestern white people, <laughs> those suburban people, and I think his campaign is like, all right, we need to figure out how to get these these people back. I, you know, again, I I just don't understand how the the <laughs> it's so funny they come out and have their convention and actually have to talk about who they are, what they want, what they're about, and start trailing in the polls rather than when they said nothing and just let Trump basically be Trump. The only part of the, you know, the only part of this race that voters are getting to see is how Trump is essentially managing our country. And it's like, wow, that's terrible. Instead of being like, look, man, look, the economy's in the dumps. He fucked up coronavirus. People in the streets rioting and looting and all of that. That's because of his response to things. It's all his fault, people. Yeah. Instead of doing that, it's like, no, we're the best cops in the world. I, I can't. Yeah. I, 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 just, I just don't understand it. But we yeah. do want to touch on the House of Representatives race. Alex yeah. Morse, you know, unfortunately lost to Richard Neal. Um, that was just a mess. The, the Democratic Party sort of apparatus, man, it's like... I I get that normies don't really pay close attention to this kind of stuff when it comes to how they feel about the party and wanting to vote on it. I mean, excuse me, and wanting to vote for Democrats. But, like, this is embarrassing, dude. Richard (laughs) Neal was was rewarded with a win, but this is ridiculous. This can't be the strategy that that they think they're going to carry forward into the future. Well, I think that there's important lessons for the left in that you have to see a smear campaign coming. You know, um, this is it was so obvious that this was a, a smear campaign. But a lot of a lot of kind of left organizations abandoned Morse in a critical time, you know, in those early days, you know, especially the Sunrise Movement, which I just praised in there because of their race, uh, their work to reelect Markey. But the Sunrise Movement abandoned uh, Alex Morse in the campaign because of the allegations of sexual impropriety, which were very obviously a hit job. Right. Um, um, and and 
so you, it's a kind of one of those things where you just got to be, you got to open your eyes and be aware of that kind of thing going forward, even though it was thoroughly, he was thoroughly vindicated, um, and that he didn't do anything wrong, you know, that kind of crucial time in the early stages of his campaign kind of sapped a lot of the energy away and he recovered somewhat and but it, it was too late you know and that's all they need that's all an incumbent has so many so many advantages especially a powerful incumbent like richard neal but i think if we zoom out a little bit you know and we look at the three big primaries um in this cycle that you know kind of the left was looking at um they won two out of three which is not bad right they they, they toppled elliot engel in new york they toppled uh, uh, Corey Lacey in um, in Missouri, Missouri, and they and they but they failed to topple Richard Neal in Massachusetts, and that's the one where the Democratic Party did the kind of dirtiest tactics, <laughs> right? So, so I think it's just a lesson for the future that like yes, they couldn't get anything on Jamal Bowman, they couldn't get anything on Corey Bush, they managed to manufacture this thing on Alex Morse, but you're gonna you have to realize they're gonna find something in your personal life that they're gonna try to use against you, and you gotta like be more, have more backbone and realize like what's going on, you know, that they're going to, that, that, that this is just a hit job and you got to stand by your people in some way. Um, but again, if you zoom out two out of three big primary challengers, I mean, they toppled Elliot Engel, who was a very powerful congressman. They toppled Lacey, who was a very powerful congressman. Richard Neal was more powerful than both of those. They weren't able to topple him, but you know, two out of three going forward, you know, and in two years, it looks like someone, someone's going to challenge Richard Neal again. You know, and that'll be similar to Cori Bush um, with Lacey, who, you know, she lost big two years ago and then won this time around. So, you know, it'll 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 be interesting to see what happens in two years. Yeah, we obviously over here, we were rooting for Alex Morse. Um, The silver lining is exactly as Nando mentioned. Two out of three ain't bad. Um, In fact, it's pretty damn good. And so we move on to the NBA uh, where last week the NBA staged. A strike, um, a mid-season yeah. strike, unprecedented in the history of the league. They made history. Uh, and so, you know, to recap, for those of you who don't follow the NBA as closely as some of us do, uh, you know, we know about what happened in Kenosha County, um, in Kenosha and Wisconsin, and the Bucks, the Milwaukee team, decided we're not playing our next game. It was an mm-hmm. NBA playoff game at that. They were willing to forfeit the game, the Bucks were. Mm-hmm. And so what ends up happening, Nando, is that the Magic probably were like, shit, okay, we'll take the win. But then, <laughs> you know, egos and sort of pride sort of gets in the way, and it's just like, nah, we can't, we can't go out like that. We have to then... We're not coming out either. And so the game becomes postponed. And then the domino effects happens for the other teams that are playing that night and the teams that are scheduled to play the next day. And so everybody essentially collectively can't be seen as not supporting this Milwaukee strike, which that and and, and I think that's key. Here, I think there's a key distinction when this is your backyard. And I think there's a key distinction when, um, shit, oh, John Henson, who used to, uh, former North Carolina Tar Heel, used to play for the Milwaukee Bucks, a big man. He went to a jewelry store out in the Milwaukee um, suburbs once and got the cops called on him. That's a lot of people don't know about the extremely segregated, strained racial mm. dynamics in the city and suburbs of Milwaukee. And the Bucks have personally, as a team, experienced it. 
And so when this happens with the police now, it's understandable that they come on and just like, yo, this is ridiculous. This is BS. Um, and so the NBA basically have a strike. They um, collectively get together. They figure out what they want to do, how they want to go about doing it. Uh, you know, certain people, of course, are going to emerge as the leaders when it comes to LeBron James and Chris Paul and the likes. Of course, the players on the Bucks are pissed. Guys like George Hill were extremely vocal about like, we didn't really feel like coming here in the first place and we're here and this shit has to happen and all of this stuff, right? And again, it was a powerful message. They set precedent and it was history, Nando. But it's hard for me, honestly, as a black dude. It's it's tough for me. Of course, I feel proud of the NBA players and the fact that they feel a need, they feel a duty, quite frankly, as citizens of this country to try to do their part to make things to make things better. At the same time, Nando, the mm-hmm. cops do some bullshit in Milwaukee or Minnesota or L.A. or New York. The question can the first question cannot be what's the NBA going to do? Yeah. That just cannot be the answer because it's like, why is it like the biggest sacrifices are always being made by black people? Like, yeah. essentially, the NBA has to not only put on an answer because like in, in the origins of my feelings about this, Nando, is the NBA constantly battling an image issue constantly. And we know essentially what that means. The NBA is seen as the black league, the league where black people are in charge and they are just constantly battling. And this goes back to the seventies where people Mm -hmm. called it the cocaine league, um, magic and, 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 and legitimately they had a lot of Iverson, the tattoos. Okay, exactly. Magic ushers in the Jordan era, which is, you know, basically the golden age of the NBA as they call Jordan is out. And the hip hop generation essentially becomes ascendant and prominent. Allen Iverson, Chris Webber, Rasheed Wallace, you know, you name all of these people. And then the MDA is battling another image issue. Um, the tattoos, the affiliate, the close affiliation to hip hop and rappers and street culture and all of these things to the point where David Stern has to institute a dress code, basically tighten up, man, make these white people, these white customers feel comfortable spending money with our NBA product. And you fast forward to today, Nando, and because we got a lot of stuff to talk about around this issue of labor, but I just want to sort of give everybody a background about the NBA and image. It's just, they, they cannot shake this image problem. You fast forward to now, where if the, 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 the perception used to be druggies, then the perception went to hip-hop, thuggery, and all of that, to now where when I tell you these are the most clean-cut, articulate, well-spoken, wholesome dudes in probably all of sports in America. We know what they do in football. Domestic violence, rapes, you name it. We know what goes on in football image-wise. The most, America's most popular sport. The NBA has the best citizens in all of pro sports. Yeah. And now we have to deal with the image of, well, they have too much power. The players are too empowered. Well, this, well, that. They still, no matter what, they're battling an image. And then they have to deal with, 
a, a freaking an executive comes out, messes up the whole relationship that they have, business relationship that they have with China. What comes out of it? Oh, the NBA doesn't speak up against China. <laughs> oh, the NBA can they can talk about policing in the country, but they don't talk about China. Oh, the NBA is a fake freedom fighter. Oh, the it's like it's constantly and I just feel like they're being boxed into a spot where, again, people who are aligned with the NBA who love them now expect them to be the ones leading the charge against police brutality. It's like the NBA has to go on strike about police brutality, and so of course. I love to see labor collectively exerting some type of power. The Bucks players and trying to get their management and ownership to exert their political capital because let's face it, the Milwaukee Bucks owners are politically connected like you wouldn't freaking believe over there. Yeah. You know, it should be on Lazary and all of them to be doing all of that. But it's the NBA players who have to be out in front and basically they're getting killed by the normies who are just like, take my shit out of sports. They're getting killed by, they're not going to get killed, but certain people are going to be like, this shit ain't militant enough. What the fuck you playing for? Blah, 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 blah. They've been boxed into a place where they can't win. And it's just yeah. frustrating for me because nobody gives a shit what baseball does. Damn sure don't give a shit what the NFL do. No. You know, and it's the NBA that has to be like the saviors of American well, morality. It's just, it's annoying, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, what I, the way, the way I reacted to it and I'm not as like, you know, deep in the NBA as you are. I mean, I followed as like a casual fan, of not course. like a, you know, professional uh, Go journalist. Heat. Hashtag heat yeah. culture. Go heat, baby. You know, Pat <laughs> Riley, I love you. Uh, but, uh, even though you're a Republican, but, uh, the, uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> no, the way I reacted to it was, you know, obviously it was all very ad hoc and disorganized, but sometimes these things are like that. And, and, and that's kind of what, um, what, what I, what I was, what I reacted to immediately was this idea that people called it a boycott, you know, and I thought that that was indicative of just how kind of dead labor has been Man. in this country for so long that they don't even know the language. And I, this is why, like, you know, as the players were doing this, like, I thought, I thought it was important to like both like support them, but also like in a way, not teach them is like the wrong word, but like tell them like you got, what you guys are doing is a strike. This is how you guys exercise power. You know, this is the, this is the real shit, you know, like this is not like, you know, the, the Jersey, the thing on the back of the jerseys right. or, this you know, writing black lives matter tangible. on the street. This is like, this is you're you're touching the bottom line, baby. And that's in America. That's where the gears uh, that's where the gears happen, you know, is at the bottom line. And if you can affect that in some way, then you have power, you know. So if the if, it, it, you know, this this all happened kind of very quickly and very disorganized and, and, and that's fine. But it did have a, a, a big material effect, which is why the potential was so immense. And while I agree with you that like, you know, it's not fair to put all this on the players of the NBA, they're just fucking basketball players. But like at a certain point, they're also like, they're one of the most prominent and public 100% unions in America, yep. you know, and people, <laughs> you know, and they have huge social capital. And if they can teach others, you know, if they could teach, for example, like the workers of a, you know, Amazon, for example, which are just completely, totally exploited, um, that they have power, 
by like like using their example, then the potential of an NBA strike is 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 tremendous. And you know, like that that's kind of how I read it. Where I, I you know, like uh, often like the burden of social change is unfair, and it, and it and it lands on um, on like the you know, the people, the people without power, right? Like almost by definition, like the people with power are never going to institute social change. It has to come right. from the people from below the people oppressed, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's kind of how I read it. And like, it, it's, it, it was a remarkable thing when it happened, you know, like it, it, and it showed a sort of brief window into, into just how powerful a labor strike can be, man. Like, it's just, 100%. Um, you know, like, and if we can, and if we can get that language back into the mainstream culture, the, the, the language of labor militancy, which is something that was Americans used to understand very well in the 1950s and the 1940s and the 19, like, you know, after, right after world war two, you know, a bunch of workers who had built all the weapons and shit, um, you know, as, as soon as world war two ended, it's like, we're like, okay, now we're organized. We know we have power. We controlled half of the world's production we're going to strike. And that's like how a huge, uh, a huge percentage of the worker gains that we saw in the 1950s and 60s happened as a result and, of that. And you it's know? important. And it's important that people understand this before I move back onto the NBA about what Nando is getting at. Just know for a fact, the five day work week didn't come from the capital class. No. Um, not exploiting child labor. That those rules didn't come from the capital class. No, they came Paid from sick labor. leave didn't come from the capital class. Paid vacation didn't come from the pa- capital class. Civil rights. Civil rights didn't come from the capital class. Okay, healthcare bennies, pensions did not come from those things. Did not materialize from the capital class. Labor yeah. had to fight for it. Every single time, every single point along the way, I feel like a lot of people who are going to be listening to this have good jobs and their jobs are taking care of them. And there's a way to forget how this shit functions. They're not doing that. Labor will, I mean, excuse me, capital will never do this on their own. You know, the NBA, like the NBA's ownership class will never step in to do something right for normal working people on their own. That will never ever be the case and so that's why i think it's important what nando was talking about is like all the gains all the things that we consider to be perks that workers enjoy never would have materialized but for labor organizing and saying we gotta fight these fools and go on strike we yeah. got to kill their pockets, sacrifice our own, and collectively, this is the only way we take these fools down. Um, and I think the players kind of know that on some kind of instinctive level, but not like kind of they – they haven't like interiorized it intellectually. And I think if that can happen in the future, you know, like if they can realize that and kind of understand some of that history and some of, you know, how that shit works, like the potential for athletes to – and think about like college football. Like imagine if the players in college football realize their power, you know, like they have so much power, but they're just – they haven't been able to they can't coalesce around um one another and you know it's so there's so much to peel on this onion you talked about the language of labor of striking versus the idea of a boycott a friend of mine was like i he thinks that the reason it's being framed in the media as a as a boycott not just because the the players use the word he thinks it's because the capitalists want it to be framed that way Essentially, like you don't want it out there that the NBA is on strike. 
Because then other workers are getting in the heads that they want to strike. Right. No, we don't want that idea proliferating no. where these guys go on striking. They get things for it. No. They just boycotting yeah. something. That's not a strike. Yeah. You can keep going to work. Boycott stuff. Don't, don't, don't ever not come to work and slave. You know, and, and, and the thing that makes this also interesting, Nando, is the concept of striking for gains that are not materially beneficial to you directly as the worker. These guys are striking on behalf of the citizens of... Of Kenosha. You're yeah. like, wait, what? But that's, you know, that's what, you know, like, that's why, like, labor, labor fought for civil rights, right. you know, at the time. Like, the AFL-CIO, crusty-ass, yep. mafia, fucking AOL-CIO, like, these fat guys, like, doing, like, hey, what the fuck? <laughs> uh, you know, like, these, right. like, fat white guys, like, they actually used their labor power for civil rights because, you know, on some level, when you have an organized working class movement, they realize that these, that they're all in it together, that like the gains of the other, like, you know, it's, it's us against them really. Like, and if, if we win, we all win. If they lose, we all win, you know? Right. And that's kind of like, you know, when people like, I, I get so frustrated when sports fans kind of take the side of management on everything, you know, like yeah. on some contract dispute. And I get that they have like an emotional investment in the team, you know, so therefore like they're inclined to take management's side. But, you know, that's that's such an indicative thing of how power relations in America have changed and how labor has been crushed. Like we should always be taking as fans, like as regular people, unless we're like the owners of a business, we should be taking uh, the side of the, of the players, you know, like the players, even though many of them are millionaires and all that stuff and like, you know, but the class relations. That's what relations, complicates it. Yeah, that's what complicates it. But the issues of class are not necessarily income. They're the, la the labor relations. It's like the whether relation you are between employer and employee. employee. That's we, what capitalism employees. describes. It describes yes. a relationship. Not right. that you can afford a mansion. No, it describes no. a relationship between George Hill and Mark Lazary. The exactly. owner of Do the you box. have to sell your labor yes. to someone else in exchange for money? You know, if that other person is extracting money from your labor and gaining profit, they are an owner. They are a capitalist. They are in the bourgeoisie. If you are selling your labor to a boss, you are a worker and all workers have that in common. No matter if you make $15,000 a year, or if you make a million dollars a year. Your interests are more aligned than they are. Like George Hill, I mean, what, what does George Hill make? Uh, what does Giannis, what does Giannis Kumpo make? Probably you know, like, like twenty-four million or something like that. Twenty-five million, off the top of my head. Insane. Yep. They have more in common with a worker at McDonald's than they do with like the small business owner of 100%. like a, of a skidoo uh, dealership in whatever the fuck who makes two hundred thousand dollars a year, right? Yeah. You know, like. They are. There is more in common with those two class relations than 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 just about income. So, so yeah, and that's why. Like, yeah, it's worth. It's as fans, we need to support the players of in course, these fights. Of course, but you know, there's the added pressure of the NBA again. When I say they're fighting an image issue, it's always it's constantly trying to get people to like the NBA. Like yeah. the product itself cannot sell. 
They have to sell drama. They have to sell intrigue. Yeah. They have to sell, you know, because we're all star fuckers in this country. They have to sell stars. They have to yeah. sell so many Where's things. Where's Kawhi going to go? I remember right. the Kawhi yeah, sweepstakes, yeah, yeah, exactly. man. That was like a soap opera. The NBA yeah. has to sell He just bought that. a house or he like, he looked at a listing on Zillow. In, in San for, Diego. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's going to LA. It's, it's you know, the, because the NBA has to do all of these things. The, they have to consider how it looks to Joe Schmo suburban prick. Um, Who buys season tickets? How, is, how does it look to that guy? Right. Like, how does it look to the regular person who loves the police? Like, they always have to be concerned with these things where the NFL, a guy can drag a broad through a freaking elevator by her hair. Yeah. They'll break records and ratings on Sunday. It's yeah. just fr- it's just a frustrating reality of the NBA just as a fan. But, you know, what I want to move on to, Nando, and it's still related to this, is we got to talk about freaking Barry, man. Yeah, so, Barry, of course, because, because LeBron, again, even though he is an NBA player, in many ways, he's one of the NBA players who does isn't really uh he's not proletariat anymore and i know how painfully nah. obvious that is to people who are listening to this well he wants to be an owner that's his ambition right oh of course he wants to be an owner and it's not just that it's like he has part he has partnered with the ruling class on so many things whether it be nike whether it be hollywood now whether it be all of these extremely capitalistic entities he is so embedded with them now that he functionally functions as sort of part of the ruling class like it's hard for people to understand this shit but lebron now he's going to be a billionaire like he he's like he is you know like at the end of the day uh patrick not even i shouldn't like somebody like donovan mitchell is going to make a lot of money um playing in the nba he's never going to be a billionaire um lebron is on his way to being that so of course when you're positioned as being like somebody who cares about black rights and black lives and blah, 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 but you're also hyper embedded with the ruling class, who do you call in this matter when your union members go on strike? You call our favorite person, Barack Obama. <laughs> you put Barack Obama on the phone, Nando, and, and, and the funniest thing about this is that you put Barack Obama on the phone and his advice to you is to get the owners to make it easier for people to vote. Not that that's not a noble cause, but yeah. that is the height of just straight up limp-wrist centrism. Yeah. It just yeah. is just smacks yeah. of centrism. And the main reason why, and I tweeted this that day, is... We don't have to hear from any owners. LeBron yeah. James, um, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, all these people after every game get a mic shoved in their face. Yeah. And they have to speak on something. We I, Has James Dolan spoken? He's he's basically owns the richest team in the NBA. Has not said a peep. Will not say a peep. Will not be inclined to. Nobody's going to make him do it. He doesn't have to do anything. And that's another dynamic that gets on my nerves and grinds my gears is that 
these dudes got to be the public faces when we know for a fact James Dolan is more politically connected. We know oh, yeah. for a fact Steve Ballmer is more politically connected. We know for a fact, shit, Tillman Frittata, the, the Houston Rockets owner, was at the White House a few weeks ago. Literally talking to President Trump directly. We know he hasn't lied to the goddamn president. These are the most politically connected people in the country because they are part of the ruling class of the country. Mm-hmm. And the idea that it's incumbent upon the NBA players, I just would hope that behind the scenes they're figuring out a way. And the fun, and you know, again, I'm they gonna let you should be listening to this show. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I'm, I'm going to let you get in there. It's just hilarious because I know the percentage of NBA owners who donate to the Republican Party. And we know the party of voter suppression is. It's the Republican yeah. Party. The concept that NBA owners would be using their arenas as polling stations while also <laughs> funding the Repu- – like, I'm talking about 90% of these guys. It might be nine. It might be 100 yeah. Percent of NBA owners fund. Maybe Steve Ballmer is a Democrat. Yeah, Paul, uh, I could see Ballmer being the, Democrat. The, the, the Silicon Valley guys might be more Democrats. Right. Uh, um, the, but, the, uh, the, the, the contrast of like them funding the GOP while also opening their shit for voting stations is like fucking yeah. Barry, man. Well, Barry, so I, I recommend to anyone, uh, there's a Adolf Reed, who I'm a big fan of on the show. We talked about him a lot. He wrote an essay in 1996 about Barry, you know, and he's like, there's this young community organizer, very well-connected, very polished Harvard guy, you know, and he saw it coming from a mile away. And this idea that he comes from this, this idea that he comes from being a community organizer is, is very indicative of the modern democratic party because the democratic party used to rely on labor organizers, (laughs) right? Whereas community organizers are the kind of people who like do, yeah, the voter drives and all that stuff like that, but not really challenging the heart of power, which is what labor organizers do, right? right. And Barack Obama, like his whole thing is that he's so personally magnetic and so personally charming and such an inspirational figure, but his actual kind of role and effect is to sort of suck out the energy from below and sort of like be able to be the safety valve in which like that energy kind of Can escapes filter into, through. Yep. Yeah, filtered through um, to protect the ruling class. I mean, that's just what he's always been really good at. I mean, that's always what he, he does, you know, like the don't boo vote, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, uh, and 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 he, he was never going to support a work stoppage (laughs) it's just never you know he would never do that even though that that would be the best way to achieve any meaningful change would be to sort of like you know empower a kind of large militant working class movement but you know that's just not his thing that's never what he was he always identified very clearly what the path to political power was for him and it was to you know basically be that kind of safety valve in which that kind of suppressed energy can escape out a little bit, you know, in a way that sort of relieves the pressure. Of course, it's manageable. manageable for the for the ruling class. And, you know, lastly, what I would say before we get up out of here is I, I, I just would would hope two things. I hope behind the scenes that these guys are smart enough and and connected enough, not smart enough because they are smart enough, but I hope that they are connected enough to understand that what they need to be doing is putting pressure, not painting the back of their fucking jerseys, 
Not doing all of this other shit with the Black Lives Matter on the court and all that other shit. Not <laughs> using the words to systemic racism, every other freaking word. Collectively, using the power that they have as a collective to exert pressure on the ownership class. Mark Lasry, what the fuck are you doing in the community of Wisconsin for normal people, black people, poor people? What are you going to be doing? What will you be doing? You, motherfucker, you're the one that needs yeah. to do it. You're the most connected. You're the richest one. It's on you to do it, fam. You want to be in business with us? This is what we care about. So I would just hope that, one, they would be doing that to apply pressure. And, 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 and related to that, I would just hope during the next negotiations that they take the lesson of the fucking coronavirus work stoppage mm. to understand what the, the Houston Rockets, this is one of the biggest media markets in the country. This, this team should have a rich owner. Okay, yeah. the Houston Rockets owner took out a loan for three hundred million dollars, basically six weeks into the freaking pandemic. This rhetoric that the owners, this is just a side hustle. They don't need the money. Blah, it's yeah, bullshit. Yeah. Just remember that y'all stopped working at the, these two days during the playoffs. Just remember what you can achieve by showing yeah. these motherfuckers exactly who the special people in this equation are. Yeah. Who the talent actually is. Yeah. Remind I mean, them the next time, please. That's, I mean, that's, that's why like professional sports is such a clear example of capitalist labor relations. Right. And that there it's like, it's, it's, it's so you obvious. know, this is true of all workers. You know, that like that they can't like no business can survive without them. But in the NBA, like it's like it's so clear that these are special human beings that kind of do something that are is absent. These like these fat, old, disgusting, <laughs> decrepit owners who couldn't like, you know, like you throw a basketball at them. They just go like that. And it hits them right in the face, right. <laughs> you know, like and that they're you know what I mean? Like it's such a clear relation of of class, a clear example of class relationships that that you're right. I mean, it's 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 I hope the, I hope the players can realize their power. I mean, that's just it, it could be an inspiration. It, they could become like an inspiration for for everyone. You know. Well, there you have it. Uh, our latest right. woke bros. Make sure you become a Patreon at patreon.com backslash count the dings. That's is the support. Shouts to all our patrons. The support that we get on Patreon helps us fund and do all of this great content that we do for you guys. Of course, make sure you subscribe to Cinephobe and the Friday, the Count the Dings official feed Friday mailbag. And make sure you're listening to Wednesday service with Naima and Curran. And make sure you're, you're checking out Growing Up the Same with Black Trey. Um, and of course, Make sure you're listening to Let's Pot It Out, Nando's Entourage Rewatch Podcast. Um, you know, of course, man, we got to continue to fight. Uh, this shit ain't going to stop. We're never going to stop. As always, rest in peace to my brother, Jamal, Michael Jamal Brooks. Left is best. We'll see you next week. We're out of here, guys. <laughs>